After this morning, we'll take a brief break from Luke for an Advent series, which is our custom. And then in January, we'll pick right back up in Luke chapter 10 and keep going. But for this morning, let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead, excuse me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining it for us through the ages. And now as we turn our attention to the preaching of it, I pray, oh God, that you would open the eyes of our heart. Lord, that you would allow us to behold wondrous things from your word. Minister to your people through the work of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like Jesus and help me your servant. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you pay attention to things like this, you'll notice it's there in the bulletin that the title for today's sermon is Resolute Faith, Resolute Faith. But perhaps it would be more appropriately titled this, what kind of faith does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? What kind of faith does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? That's the question. And the answer is a resolute faith. Maybe to put it another way, a, a faith that is resolved to stand in the face of trial and in the face of temptation. When I think of resolute faith, many people come to my mind that perhaps I'm inclined most to think of one of my heroes of the faith, Martin Luther. As you well know, Luther was one of the champions of the 16th century Protestant Reformation in Europe. And I believe the resolve of Luther's faith was best displayed in his words and what he said. The words that he uttered before the Diet of Worms. I know you want to say worms, but the Diet of Worms on April 18th, 1521. That was a long time ago. Having been summoned there, you may remember, you may know, he was summoned there to stand before the emperor. And before other heads of church and heads of state for what he thought was going to be a disputation. 
right? A hearing, a time to talk. But rather, he was called right there on the spot to formally recant all his writings, which were laid out on a table before him. Writings that were highly critical, highly critical of Roman Catholic doctrine and practice. And they were writings that based that critique in the very words of scripture. Well, as you know, he took some time to consider. Occasionally he had the night off. They gave him time to go away and consider. Luther came back the next day, and that day is the day I referenced, April 18th. And he answered their call to recant with these words. Some of you can probably quote them with me. Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand God help me. Amen. Those were his words. Here I stand. That's resolute faith. God help me. That's resolute faith. This is the kind of faith that our text describes for us today. And it begins with an even greater picture of resolute faith than Martin Luther. For it begins with the resolute faith of Jesus. You can see it right there in verse 51. When the days drew near, this is a turning point in the gospel for us. Everything's changing. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. He turned himself and looked to Jerusalem and set his face to go there. Jesus had left the glories of his heavenly home for a purpose. And the culmination of that purpose was to take place in Jerusalem, the place where he would be taken up to hang on the cross at Calvary. That was his earthly true north the final fulfillment of his father's wonderful plan for his life. And with echoes of Isaiah 50 in his heart, where it says he was set like flint, the servant will be set like flint. He set his face to go there. He set his purpose to go there. That is the ultimate resolute faith. And not only does Jesus display for us what such faith looks like, but he also uses a series of interactions, interactions found in verses 52 through 62. He uses these interactions to show us, and I've put it together for us, two core facets that we must have if we're to have a faith that is as resolute as his. And the first of these two core facets is what I would like to call a change of heart. If you're taking notes this morning, that's the first of two main points, a change of heart. I'm keeping you on your toes. Last week we had four, this week we have two. I can be different, okay? A change of heart. You find this in verses 52 through 56. 
one principle that becomes abundantly and I would say abidingly clear from this point forward in Luke is that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem and to the cross, the more sharply he comes into conflict with the people who reject him as the Messiah. In the case before us, the people who are rejecting him are Samaritans. And they reject him precisely because he was going to Jerusalem. They reject him because he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see it right there for yourselves in verses 52 and 53. Now, the Samaritans and the Jews, they're, they're kind of cousins, right? But they were bitter enemies, bitter enemies of a conflict that had raged on for hundreds of years. And we don't have time this morning to go into all of that, but you can talk to me or look it up. And I, I encourage you to do that. But of particular disagreement that I want to focus on today, of particular disagreement between the two was the Samaritan belief that the true place to worship God was not Jerusalem. They believed that the true place to worship God was at their own Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is where you go to worship. So when Jewish pilgrims traveled through Samaria on their way up to Jerusalem, they were often met with an angry response. And often many Jews took the long way around. It was easier to just go around them and not have to deal with all the conflict. You see, the last thing that a Samaritan wanted to do was to help a Jew get to Jerusalem. But Jesus isn't in the business in this passage of going around. He had his face set. So when Jesus sends people ahead to make preparations for him, they were rejected. And so they went on to a different village. Well, James and John, the disciples, they hear about this. And I guess we could just stereotype them as men. They wanted to do something about it. They wanted to do something about it. With the spirit and the fire of Elijah, right? They asked Jesus in verse 54, look there. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's like, whoa. You know, in Mark, it says that Jesus named them the sons of thunder. Now you know why. It says that he knew what was in a man's heart. So he named them sons of thunder, these are what one friend of mine calls the get-or-done disciples. Uh, I've called them the Apostolic Justice League. <laughs> you might say the kind of guys you want to have your six, right? You want these guys to have your back when you're in trouble. These two were proudly displaying a bold faith in God and a passionate zeal for the honor of Jesus. You can see it, right? Go ahead and reject my Jesus. Mess around and find out. That's what they're saying. See what happens to you. But obviously, even with their bold faith and their passionate zeal, they do lack something very important. How can I be sure of that? Because the Bible tells me that. It's not my own thoughts. Look at verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Jesus rebuked them. So what's going on here? I mean, weren't the Samaritans wrong in their beliefs? Weren't they wrong in their ignorant prejudice against the Jews? Weren't they even more wrong to reject the very Messiah, the king himself? Sure, they were wrong. But this 
This day was not yet a day of judgment. This was still a day for mercy. The Samaritans still had time to repent. Thus, it was wrong. It was wrong for James and John to seek their destruction before their time. It's easy to look at this and say, sure, okay. They had good intentions, though. Do you know the old saying? I hear my dad say it all the time. The road to hell is paved with all kinds of good intentions. We need more than good intentions. We're actually called to more than good intentions. We need righteous actions. We need more than zeal for God's glory. We need hearts that are filled with the compassion of Christ. We need more than just knowledge of scripture, as Mario reminded us earlier. We need spiritual wisdom to know how to apply it to our own situation. And never is this more important than when we think that we have a responsibility to defend God's cause. And when we do, we need to be careful. We may be right about sin in someone's life. We may be right about a problem with the church, whether it's this church or the whole church. We may be right about some wickedness in our government. And we may be right even about the ungodliness of our culture. But when we stand up and we speak out, which we should do, but when we do that, we must do so in a way that demonstrates the kindness of God. Do so in a way that demonstrates the mercy of Jesus Christ. There's still time to repent. And do it in a way that shows the truth of Scripture as revealed by the Holy Spirit, not by the book of first and second opinions. This is a high calling, brothers and sisters. Jesus is making a plain and simple point. Our present calling is not to seek revenge against God's enemies. That's not what he says throughout his whole gospel. But it's to love them, to serve them in love. And that takes a massive change of heart, does it not? It does for me. But is there hope that God can do it? Yes. <laughs> he did it in John, the son of thunder's life. This thunderous John is the same one who would be known as the son of thunder. He's known as the apostle of love. Read his letters, read his gospel. The apostle of love. You still don't believe me? Take some time today to read Acts chapter 8, particularly verse 25. You'll see that he and Peter, quote, preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Amen. Amen. The same people John had once desired to obliterate, he now sought to win with the gospel. Because that's how the kingdom advances. If you understand the kingdom economy of Jesus, you know that we live in a mixed kingdom. There's always going to be weed and tares, right? It's always going to be mixed. And the gospel doesn't spread by force. It spreads by the telling of the truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit changing the hearts of men and women and boys and girls around the whole world. That's how the gospel spreads. And it's not our job to sort out the wheats and the tares at the end, because the last time I saw in the Bible, Jesus comes back and sorts out 
the wheats and the tares. And if he doesn't do it now in this life, he will do it on the last day. And so it's right. Don't misunderstand me. It's right to take a stand. It's right to speak up. But it's always good to ask ourselves, is my heart for Christ in this? Am I speaking with the love of the Father and the compassion and mercy of Jesus Christ and the truth of the Holy Spirit? That changed heart is the heart of a resolute faith because sometimes you just have to stand. Sometimes you're not called to advance just yet, but you're called to stand strong. And so Jesus stands here, his face set to Jerusalem. It's not time yet, but he's gonna go and he's gonna do what he's called to do. And that's what I speak of when I say a change of heart. How is your heart? How is your heart? The second core facet of a resolute faith is what I'd like to call a change of priority. A change of priority. This change of priority can be seen in three brief interactions contained in 57 through 62. And you're going, ha ha, I knew it. There'd be three in there somewhere. He's got three sub points under point two. There's three brief interactions. Let's look at them, okay? The first of these interactions is found in verses 57 through 58. And you can look there again. I won't reread it for the sake of time, but you can look there. So in this interaction, Jesus is calling into question what we are willing to give up in order to follow him. You see, this man who comes along and says that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes is saying the right thing, right? Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. But it's not his words that are being questioned. It's his priority. I mean, he does speak with a lot of confidence. But perhaps, and this is what Jesus is challenging him to, perhaps he hasn't truly counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple. Has he considered the way of sorrow and loss and death that Jesus is taking? That's why he says, hey, I don't even have a place to lay my head. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of everything. Have you thought about that? If he hadn't questioned it yet, he is now. What Jesus is saying is that the call to follow him is a call to forsake earthly comforts. It's a call to forsake material possessions. It's a call, as we're going to see repeated throughout the rest of the gospel, to be willing to give up everything for Jesus. Mario talked about Zambia. We don't live in Zambia. We live in America, right? We live in an experience of extravagant, generous grace. God hasn't called many of us to do this very thing, to get rid of everything, to give up everything. We've been blessed with much bounty, but just like the man before us in the text, we're called very much the same way, no matter how much we have, never allow those things to get in the way of a resolute faith. Jesus's ultimate call to us is that we lay aside the things of the world, earthly ambitions, right? Lay aside comforts for the sake of following him. And listen, just because he hasn't doesn't mean that he won't. He very well could call you, even through force, outside force, to give up everything, to get rid of it all for the sake of following him. He could do that. Are you willing to do that? I think you can. 
It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to fathom. But I think we can if we do this. The reason I think Jesus brings up home here is because he's trying to teach them that ultimately God himself is their dwelling place. God himself is our home. And if we keep that in mind, we can indeed leave everything to follow Jesus. And guess what? Even if we have nothing, we still have everything. We'll still be at home. We have God living in God, living for God. That home has to be our earthly priority. That's the point of this interaction. The second interaction occurs in verses 59 through 60. And you can look there again. If that first interaction questioned what I would call priority of comfort, this one questions the claims of family, right? The priority of maybe family claims. Now, unfortunately, this interaction has often been misunderstood and misapplied somewhat grossly. At first read, especially with Western eyes, it appears that this conversation is taking place sometime between the death of this man's father and his proper burial. Like here in the West, we might actually take a week or more between death and burial. But that's not the case. That's not what's happening. That's, that's not what's, what's here in context. You have to have some uh, cultural background to understand. So I'll help you quickly. Uh, in those days, right? In those days, Jewish people buried their dead within 24 hours. When someone died within 24 hours, that person was buried. They had no way of preserving bodies, right? So they'd bury right away. And family members from the time of death until burial would sit. You would stay there with the deceased and you would have a time of mourning. You would mourn until the body was laid to rest. So if the father had died already, in the case of the, the example here before us, his son wouldn't have even been there to talk with Jesus. He would have been sitting with his family, which is what you would have done as the son. You certainly wouldn't have went out and said, hey, I wanna follow you, Jesus, but wait, we haven't buried dead yet. No, that's a Western thinking, get that out of your mind. What's happening here is something altogether different. What is it? What's he asking? He's basically asking Jesus to press pause. Uh, thanks for calling me, Jesus, but hold on a minute. I'd like to care for my father during his declining years until he finally dies. <laughs> well, that seems reasonable, right? Okay, that's reasonable. Even it lines up with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. But the thing we tend to forget sometimes is that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus discerns something else going on. This man is using his family situation as an excuse for delaying his service. We don't know how bad his dad was. His dad could have been relatively young. We don't know. We don't know. We can't know. But Jesus clarifies it for us. I think it's important to say this. What hinders us, me and you, what hinders us from following Christ is not always something sinful. Sometimes it's something good in itself that nevertheless gets in the way of what God really wants us to do. When Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, he's not being cold and careless. He's saying that this is not your primary calling, young man. There are others 
who can do that task. There are others who can care. Maybe he could have been called to care for a dying father, but he wasn't. Jesus was calling him to go and preach the gospel. And by saying, let the dead bury the dead, he's just saying, that's a job that even unbelievers can do. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, right? They can handle that. When Jesus calls this man to leave his family obligations in the hands of others, that's what he's calling him to do. You do that so you can go and proclaim the kingdom. And when his dad dies, he can go back and sit with him for the day. That sounds harsh to us, doesn't it? Man, that sounds cruel. I want my warm and fuzzy Jesus back. That sounds harsh. I think it only sounds harsh because we don't understand the full demands of following Jesus. We're blinded by our prosperity. We don't understand. I think it also could be that we don't understand the central demand that Jesus is actually laying upon us here. And it's, I can put it very simply. Don't put Jesus off even one more day. Don't put it off. You're always going to find one more thing to do before you really follow him, especially if you're looking for it. And what I've discerned is that most people are looking for it. But I want you to remember this, a resolute faith in Jesus, a faith that'll follow him wherever he calls. Such faith is not about fitting Jesus around some modicum of ordered life, some ideal that you have in your head. It's actually the opposite. It's ordering our lives around Jesus. He's the one at the center. If you're waiting for life to reach a certain point before you finally and fully devote yourself to Jesus, I've got some hard news for you. In my experience, you'll probably never reach that point. And here's why. If Jesus doesn't have your full heart fully right now, what makes you think he's gonna have it then? If you can't give it to him fully right now, what makes you think you're going to do it later? You, me, all of us need a change in our priority. We need to follow him right here and right now. Okay, the third and final interaction comes in verses 61 and 62. You can look down and see that there for you. This is my favorite guy. I think he heard the interaction that just happened, right? And he's one of those eager beavers. I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll do it. I'll follow you. He's ready. He's willing to go now. He's ready to go sooner. But, notice the but. Let me go home and say goodbye to my family. Again, that sounds reasonable. Perhaps even a matter of courtesy, right? I actually wonder if 1 Kings 19 isn't in play here. I, I know that you don't have 1 Kings 19 memorized. In that account, Elisha, the prophet, answers God's call to leave the family farm and to follow Elijah. And before he does, he's given permission to kiss his father and mother goodbye so Elisha goes home, he burns his plow, he slaughters his oxen, and he holds a farewell feast for his family and his friends. 
You can read that later today. I think that it's in play here because I think that's what's in Jesus's mind when he uses that farming proverb. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, this isn't Elisha standing in front of Jesus. Jesus knew something about this man that only the king of hearts, who knows all hearts, can know. Jesus knew that this man would be tempted to stay if he went back. Jesus knows that because he's God in the flesh. He knows that going home, something about that situation would cause this man to take his eyes off the calling of the kingdom. It fits well with that proverb for all of us, right? I've never farmed in my life. Some of you have. I barely can grow anything in a container. But there's one thing I do know is if you do want to plow a straight line, you look straight ahead. You set your eyes on something and you go, right? It's that way in a lot of things. What happens if you start looking behind you? Sorry if you're listening online later. You're going to zigzag everywhere. You're not going to make it straight to the point. To look back will cause you to get off course. So Jesus calls this man to do his duty. You've committed. Now do it without any delay. Move forward in your decision without looking back. This is also resolute faith. It's faith that doesn't second guess. To bring this home a little bit in your minds, I'll ask you this. How many people have you seen turn back from following Jesus when life circumstances require them to follow Jesus through grief, to follow Jesus through failure, to follow Jesus through sickness and suffering, to follow Jesus through anything that doesn't live up to their earthly expectations. Don't forget the other hand. How many people have you seen turn back from following Jesus when they have everything, when they're successful? and endlessly happy. Whatever the case, the same question remains. Did you really set out to follow Jesus in the first place? This whole interaction reminds me of some advice that John Wesley once gave to some people who came to him and wanted to know, sir, how do we follow Jesus? This is what he said. Do all the goods you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times that you can, to all the people that you can, as long as you ever can, as soon as you can, as soon as you can. That's good advice. It's really good advice. Purpose in your heart. That's what he was saying. Purpose in your heart to follow Jesus and go do it. Go do it. Do it as soon as you can. These three brief interactions then remind us that a resolute faith requires a change of priorities. It requires a reordering of our priorities. And coupled with a change of heart, I believe that we will be best positioned to make the resolute faith of Jesus our very own faith. So I want to land the plane, bring us to a close this morning by thinking about what happened. What happened to these three would-be disciples? Did they ever follow him? Did they ever decide to follow him? Was the first man willing to be homeless 
for the sake of the gospel? Did the second man let the dead bury their dead so that he could preach the gospel? Did the third man go home and say goodbye or did he start following Jesus right then and there? Boy, it'd be good to know that, wouldn't it? But oh, Luke, who loves the details and loves to tell us all the things, doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell us that. Maybe that's because Luke's main concern was to help us write the ending to our own story, the story of our own journey with Jesus. And so to do that, I believe we must know what Jesus did. Jesus kept on going to Jerusalem. Having set his face to go there, nothing was going to stand in his way. His heart was beating for the sake of his mission. He had already forsaken all the things that he was calling his disciples to forsake. And with single-minded, wholehearted devotion to the glory of his father, Jesus made it to Jerusalem where he was taken up to the cross. And yes, where he was later even taken up to glory in his ascension. Now he calls us. He calls you and me. He calls us to go where he has gone. He calls us to make sacrifices. He calls us to suffer the kinds of losses that he suffered. And he tells us to do it with a heart for him and a heart for the gospel. But the question is, are you ready to follow Jesus before going on to glory? Are you ready to follow Jesus all the way to glory? If so, set your face toward your true north, to your very home in heaven and run, run the race that is before you. My prayer for you, for me, is that we would have the same resolute faith that Jesus had. And oh man, one day we get to celebrate with him in heaven for all eternity. That is good news. Amen. Amen.